0: Hey there everyone, it's uh, David Barnett from davidcbarnett.com, the blog site, YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, podcast, where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. Today, I'm with Robert Gale, who is the principal of Rossay Capital Partners. Robert is about an hour and a half down the highway from where I live, and I wanted, I've been wanting to have him on the show for quite some time, because Robert is a real-life deal maker who has been in and out of many different businesses over the course of his life and runs a business now, which is about, you know, helping businesses, helping entrepreneurs and making deals. And I, I, I guess maybe Robert, uh, Robert, what I'd like to do is just ask you a little bit about how you got started on this path towards, uh, towards being an entrepreneur and, and being involved in business.
1: Well, I think, you know, a bit of a long story, but I'll keep it as short as I can. I did the paper route thing and my brother and I had a little car wash thing when we were younger, but the re- the first real business would have been uh, a dairy bar business uh, just outside of St. John in a, in a place called uh, Quispam Sis. And uh, so anyway, I was in university and looking for something to do. I'd worked at uh, on an assembly line, I guess, uh, the year before and did not want to go back to doing that for my summer job and an opportunity to come up where a dairy bar had gone bankrupt. And, uh, the, the space was available, all the equipment was still there. So I went and approached the previous owners and bought all the equipment and opened up. And, uh, anyway, had a great year. Uh,
0: what, what made you think you could do differently?
1: Uh, I don't know why. I, I, I think probably it was my father who might have been living vicariously through me. He, he wanted me to be in business. And they said, well, you know, I got nothing to lose. I'm 17 years old. What are they going to take? So might be a bit of a watered down version. But I, I think when you don't know, sometimes it gives you a bit of confidence. So uh, I jumped in and, uh, you know, and I was successful probably because of the things I, I didn't know, but, but he, the common sense things. And I think the, the, the biggest thing was I had made back then, you know, $2,500 summer was a really good summer in terms of student earnings. Uh, you know, I made $11,000 that summer. So I was a rich kid on campus when I went back and everybody wanted to know how, how did you do that and all that stuff. And I didn't really have the answers. But I think that the two elements that created success, well, there were three elements that created success for me. I was young. Everybody wanted to help me. Mm-hmm. And the community was great. I, I mean, I start, my opening inventory was free. Everybody gave me the product. I asked the dairy. I said, "Would you fill up the freezer for me for free?" I'm just a, a young guy trying to get going. They said, "Sure, we'll do that." Coke, Pepsi, uh, the chip companies. So, so I started with it. You know, started ahead of the game just because I, you know, took advantage of the age thing. People, you know, wanted to help you, help me because I was young. Uh, I, you know, I picked up, you know, a turnkey business that had already been established. So there was already a dairy bar there for the previous two years. So that was certainly you know, a, a big help to me.
0: So there's was probably traffic, you know, people were headed there assuming they'd be able to get some ice cream.
1: Yeah, that's right. They, you know, they didn't know it had bankrupt because it was kind of in the fall when it closed and then I reopened in the spring. So, you know, the, the guy on the street didn't really know much about it. But I think that, I guess, back to the elements, uh, I was there open to close every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, in retail, there's a high exposure when you're dealing with cash. I didn't know that, but because I was there, that, that exposure was reduced. Right. And I was doing a simple thing like calculating how many scoops of ice cream are there in a tub. And then I would just do the math every day. Okay. Well, we sold 10 tubs and I know there's a hundred scoops and so there's 400 scoops in the math. So when that was out of line, I'd say to everybody, you guys are over scooping, you know, you need to bring it back in here. We, we got to make sure that, you know, we're making the margin we're going to make. So I eliminated the shrinkage and, and not knowingly, but just because I was monitoring, you know, the, the yield per tub. So, and, and being there. Because in, in,
0: a, in a business like this, What typically happens is employees help themselves to some ice cream. Maybe someone comes in to pay cash and an employee might be tempted to put that money in their pocket. And they're young and their
1: friends are coming in. And they're giving
0: their friends deals. Right. So, so by being present and by actually using the calculator, you were able to curb all this, even though maybe you didn't even know this was something you had to keep your eye on.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And and it worked because the next year I acquired, the competitive dairy bar down the road, so I had the two dairy bars, the only two dairy bars in the whole region. And uh, I hired a young girl, I put her on profit sharing, and all I was doing was the same thing: measuring how many scoops come out of the tub and what the yield was for the day. So it, it, I was able to actually duplicate it, and had an extremely successful the following year. Like you know, we didn't double double the revenue, but I think we were up around seventeen thousand dollars with the second operation. And and back then that was significant money for for a young guy.
0: Sure. So, and and so then uh, obviously you didn't stay in the ice cream business forever. What then happened?
1: Well, uh, the, the money, so to speak, was burning a hole in my pocket at that age. So I said, geez, I can do whatever I want to do. So I went to the Moncton Flight College and did my commercial pilot training and, uh, and spent most of the money. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it, but it, it just brought to light the idea that, you know what, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not going to be a commercial airplane pilot. And I knew that halfway through the training and I I finished up and went on my way and went right back into business.
0: Okay. And so how many different businesses do you think you've been in and out of over the years?
1: Well, it would be 20 plus. Mm -hmm. And and my MO typically was, uh, you know, buy, build, sell. And, uh, you know, that's morphed over the years or whatever. And and, and, and I, I did a run for about 10 years where I decided I just want to be focused on, on on this business. It's easy to chase shiny things. And when you're a, an entrepreneur, you know, you know there's a little bit of a struggling to stay focused because every idea looks like a great idea. But you have to be focused. So I focused on, uh, I went into the bottled water business and I focused on that for about 10 years. So I sold that business back in '08. And uh, so I exited that business and then it wasn't long and I was going into another business, but uh, certainly on a different plane because there was capital available and I could kind of choose what I wanted to do and it was lifestyle business more than anything.
0: Okay. And so, you know, the businesses that you've bought, have they all been like the ice cream shop? Have they all been bankrupt distress situations or have you bought some that were profitable, but you saw the opportunity to take them to new places?
1: I don't think I've ever bought a profitable business. I
0: didn't very want <laughs> to
1: but, but, but I always like this is to the
0: look. can I wanted to open. All right.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I think I, I think, you know, if I look at kind of my, you know, where I where I started, I guess, in terms of the dairy bar business and where I am today, uh, you know, the MO would be kind of a buy, build, sell. And I think it's, you know, you running with what you believe to be a vision. I'm very fortunate to have a wife that was tolerant enough to let me uh, let me do what I want and not really know whether there was a paycheck coming in this week or not. And uh, she supported me through it and she's always been in business with me, but uh, over time, you know, uh, you know. I guess I would come across things and say, "Geez, this looks like a pretty good business. Why are they in trouble?" And then, you know, I, and I and I do think I do take a fairly basic look at things. There's basic business principles that that are across the spectrum of business. Certain ingredients that you'd like to see in a business to to, to catch my interest. So you know, that's kind of how it went. I mean, they weren't all wins. Uh, a lot of times, you know, I get into a business, and and, and, and it really hasn't been a business that I haven't been gone into that it was not what I expected once I got in. Uh, you know, b- uh, business and entrepreneurialism is, is really about pivoting.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: when you get in, you learn, you say, okay, I know I have to change. I didn't know that, but I have to make a change here and move, you know, make a move in, in another direction. Uh, I can give you a, kind of an example of a business that I went into that I knew nothing about.
0: Mm-hmm. And it was
1: a childhood uh, thing uh, in Newfoundland. We uh, lived there in Newfoundland when we were kids and there was a company called Bugden's Cab and they had all blue calves and the guys wore ties. And I thought it was always just such a well-run organization. So uh, you know, at 23 years of age, or I guess I was 24, uh, there was a cab co- I started inquiring a little bit about the cab business because I was intrigued with it. So I bought a cab company, and It had seven cars, and it was you know it was re- really losing money on a weekly basis. But anyway, I jumped in, and I was in a little bit of trouble for that one because when I arrived home and told my wife I bought a cab business, she she would just it was speechless. But anyway, we, we went into the business and, uh, and you know had a meeting with the drivers you know, we got to remember most of these guys are older guys and, you know, have already had a career or done something or, you know, they're in the business for a reason. A lot of them are, are really a uh, very free spirit. In other words, they don't like to work within structure. They want to work when they want to work and they can go make a hundred dollars in the evening or in the morning. They can control their day. Yeah. So, uh, which was very different than I guess how I thought I'm very, very structured thinking. So I had a meeting with the drivers and, uh, you know, there was a lot of grumbling, you know, who's this punk and what's he doing and all this stuff. And and the first question, the guy stands up and says, uh, you know, what do you, what do you know about the cab business? And I was just lucky enough that I guess just the way I thought, I said, I know absolutely nothing about the cab business. So don't expect me to tell you anything because I know nothing about it. You guys are the experts. You live it and breathe it every day. That's all I need to build this business. And anyway, sat down and it was kind of a big win. Like they said, oh, okay, so he's not pretending he knows everything. We're the guys that know it all. So it worked out great in terms of, you know, it's a bit of a longer story, but it worked out great. Uh, there was a big thing back then called direct lines. Yeah. And this is before the cell phone era. I'm dating myself. But before the cell phone era, a big thing was to have a phone hanging on the wall that was a free line to, to, uh, to
0: call the taxi stand for your, for your pickup. I actually saw one of these still the other day at a grocery store.
1: Yeah, there it's is the there. odd one around. Yeah, Sobeys, I've seen one in Sobeys in, in Charlottetown, actually, a, lot, a couple of weeks ago. So uh, I just had an idea, and, and sometimes this is what's kind of worked for me, I guess. As you go in, and you don't know anything about it, so you're learning, so you're stimulated, you're looking at ideas, what could work. Has somebody tried this? Is Has somebody done this before? Is there a different way to do this to make this you know a better business? So I, I was lucky enough to come up with uh, the idea that uh, – Instead of installing all these direct lines and have the weakening cost of the direct lines, I'll do the reverse of that. We will market that you can call one eight hundred six five one 651 taxi and go to any pay phone in the city and call that number, and it's a toll free charge to get picked up by a cab. Well, it was just just luck, it was like the rookie, you know, stepped up to the plate and got a double or a home run, or it was it was a very a very they were they were really quite taken by it. And they bought into it, and uh, and we started our our ramp up uh, in terms of building the business. So,
0: so instead I, of having the fixed expense of all these direct lines, you had a variable cost it cost you whatever it was every time someone used the number. Exactly. Yeah, but that yeah. always meant a sale.
1: It well, if they called, it meant a sale. It was a guaranteed yeah. sale for the quarter. Yeah. And the rate was actually better than the quarter because it was a discounted 1-800-LINE. So it was, even, it was even less than that. But, but yes, there was a result from every call. So it, was, it wasn't like it was a lead. It was, it was an actual sale every time somebody called. So, so it worked out very well. And we were, I worked away at the business for about three years. And so we started with seven cars and I sold the business when it was 82 cars. So we went from, I think it was uh, 3.5% of the market to 40% of the market uh, when I exited. And, uh, but anyway, it was a great learning experience. It was a, a, a huge HR experience dealing hmm. with over 200 drivers. And uh, so, you know, you get all these different walks of life and different personalities and to be able to kind of work with them. And I won't take the credit for that. My wife uh, was really the one managing the men, so to speak. And, uh, and it worked out really well for, for, for both of us, actually.
0: What, what was one of the businesses that you got into that didn't work out so well?
1: Well, there was, there was probably more than one for sure, but the mm. one that sticks out in my mind was I went into business with my brother. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it was around the time of the taxi business. It was, you know, that era. It's a long time ago now, but uh, anyway, we had kind of done things before together. We washed cars, paper, we did everything together in terms of little business ideas, and we shared mini bikes that like were only a year apart, so we were pretty close, so so I made a deal with him. I said, "Listen, I'm going to go into the mobile sign business, and uh, you know, you do the deliveries and do the, the you know the physical part, and I'll do all the marketing and all, uh, and I'll get all the financing, do everything. You don't have to take care of anything other than operations." Anyway, he was only a young guy, and he was having a good time. And uh, so anyway, the phone, uh, the phone was ringing off the hook. We really, you know, we really got some traction with it, but we couldn't get the signs <laughs> delivered. And uh, so anyway, it was creating a bit of a schism, and. Uh, And, uh, you know, collecting the money was becoming a little bit of a hassle, too, because you typically collect it when you drop it off and then you go into a monthly billing. So there were some issues there that, uh, you know, things weren't, we weren't weren't collecting money. And and the old saying, uh, value diminishes after the service is rendered. It was the problem. And uh, so anyway, uh, made a decision to. uh, So were the deliveries,
0: were the deliveries delayed because you couldn't get the equipment or because your brother wasn't on top of the job?
1: Well, um, he was young. And we uh, had other interests and stuff like that. And, uh, and I mean, it wasn't a large company. So we just decided, we just said, you know, let's wind this up. You don't have time for it. And I don't have time for it. So we'll wind it up. So I approached another sign company and just sold off, uh, sold the equipment off and went on my way. And,
0: yeah. So over the course of the, the, the different businesses that you've been involved in, I think you mentioned to me at one time, you also still at certain times took employment positions, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I and that leads into kind of one of, I guess, probably my longest run in the business was uh, I was involved with the convenience store chain and I had an executive position with them. And I was uh, in charge of kind of the operational end of it, but I also under my, my, my in my wheelhouse was the dealing with all of the vendors. So I was uh, uh, doing all the negotiation with vendors and, and uh and everything that kind of comes in comes with that. So while I was doing that job and the chain, I think at that time we were in 37 units, and uh, and we were regional Atlantic Canadian. And uh, so I was doing. I did a deal with a bottled water company, and and the trend in the water just seemed to be kind of like every time you look at a report, the numbers were up and they were never down. They were always up and they were always moving and moving. You know, in, the, in that higher direction, higher volume direction. And back then, at that time. Uh, I guess, you know, it was kind of a really not a norm in terms of the, the growth rates were just well exponential. And uh, I, I looked at it and I had been in a previous business. I had been in the soft drink business when I was a young guy. And I always kind of had a little bit of a an inkling for the, uh, you know, the beverage distribution business. So anyway, I, uh, I kept watching and I said, you know, there's a real opportunity here. And this, this will tell you, you know, it's a while ago, this, Pepsi and Coke weren't in it yet. And uh, so there I saw the opportunity to just, you know, you know there's a way to, to kind of uh, brand, get, get a brand going and build something here. So it's a great example of a pivot because I get uh, So anyway, I left the convenience store chain, gave my notice, I went and opened a bottled water plant and, uh, and went on my way with that business. And I started out that it was gonna be the single serve package because Coke and Pepsi weren't in the game, so I, and I knew the retail and I knew the dynamics of programs and how that could work you know, for different retailers. So I went on the road selling my, uh, my brand and we were getting very good traction until uh, Coke and Pepsi decided they were going to be in the mm. water business. And they had the sales force to support. Sports.
0: Right. It was just an add on for them.
1: Just an add on for them. So they had lower cost distribution. They had, uh, you know, the marketing, they had, uh, the human resources, you know, the guys in the store every week, you know, moving stuff around and they were moving me out of the way. <laughs> and, uh, so it became you know, quite a bit of a struggle to compete with them and, and they have programs. And they would tie the water sales to the pop sales program, so you couldn't get your Coke or Pepsi program for the water unless they were the only one with the water. And so they were, they were, you know, reasonably successful in squeezing me out. I guess if I could use that word. So you know, I kind of looked at the market and said, well, you know, what's a you know what's a, what's probably a better play for me at this point? That's you know probably less. Uh, uh, I guess lower cost and, 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 uh, you know, available for somebody of uh, in my scale. In other words, I don't have shareholder support. It's private money. It's my own money. And I, you know, and I'm a small operator. So I pivoted at that point into the five gallon business. And, uh, so that was, uh, so that's where we went with that business. So we had the facilities. So these are the
0: big jugs that go on the coolers that go glub, glub, glub. When you, when you pour the water out.
1: Yeah. Typically you'd see them on uh, you know, on a water cooler and in a house or typically in an office space or whatever. So uh, we were in the business, but it wasn't kind of our, our main focus. So we pivoted, we, we actually left the, the uh, single serve market behind and went into the five gallon business. There were, were fewer players, you know, there was some things, you know, in terms of capital that we was going to be putting out, there was no risk of it coming from China. You know, it kind of had a lot of the ingredients that I kind of liked anyway. The only thing I didn't like was the freight costs because it's mm-hmm. a heavy commodity, but Anyway we were able to uh you know i guess you know the long story or the short story on on that particular business was we pivoted um, we already had the production capability the capacity everything was available warehousing everything anyway because I was in the in the business but in a different area so I focused on the five gallon so we moved into that so the, the the biggest reason I would have to say for our success in that market was uh we we introduced, a uh, back then, there was no handle on a bottle of water, so we were the first to bring in a handle with a bottle of water, and something simple like that you think would not matter. It was huge. We walked into and, and any office and showed them a handle on a bottle, and, a, and yeah. what they call a spill-proof cap. You used to have to tear the cap off, and mm-hmm. you spill water all over the place when you're turning the, the bottle onto the cooler. So we introduced the cap and the handle, the bottle with a handle, and, and you wouldn't think that's much of a disruptor. But the problem was the competitor, the big competitor, and at that time it was owned by Danon out of France. So you're talking a multinational with deep pockets who were my main competitor. Well, their regional division, which would be Atlantic Canada, all of their bottles didn't have handles. So for them to convert all of those bottles to bottles with handles was an enormous capital cost in making all the bottles that they had worthless. And at that time, you know, I'm going to guess they would have had hundreds of thousands of bottles out in the market. So it was such a financial impact for them to pivot. So how they did respond was they they had to keep up with me. So they pivoted in the local market. So they started introducing that bottle in their deliveries in the local market and moving those other bottles to a market that I wasn't in. And <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's how they addressed it. But I mean, you know, and bottles have turned, you know, there's a turn, turn cycle to these bottles. So they were... Their new turn cycle is now we're replacing them with bottles, with handles, and we need to start using the smoke. With
0: I, I have direct experience with this because when I was a teenager and in my, in my college years, whenever I had a summer job, I mean, ever since I've been 17 years old, I've been over six feet tall and a, and a big guy. And it didn't matter where I worked as a summer job. One of the things that was always added to my job description is the guy who puts the water on. because being a big guy, I could rip that. I know what you mean by the spill proof caps, because I have handled many of the other ones where you take it off and you've got this open bottle and you have to be able to swing that jug over onto the cooler in one motion or else you've got liters of water spilling all over the place. And for the people who I was working with in these offices, you know, a lot of them were smaller people or, or ladies and they didn't have the size strength etc to do do that and I can see immediately where if they were to see the the handle bottle with the spill proof cap, they would instantly see the value in that.
1: Well I think like I say it just brings it to a very simple basic point. Yeah. I solved a problem. Yeah. And that's all it was. I just solved a problem and it was available in the market. So somebody else had actually solved the problem. I introduced it into our market. So we had great growth rates, but it's kind of back to, you know, how can you make a business work? How, you, gotta be, if you you got to do something different if you're going to make any kind of an impact or, or if you're going to capture customers. So, so we did a lot of things different. There's there a kind of a, a bit of a laundry list of the things we did that were different. We focused on retail where nobody was really that interested in retail because there was a perception nobody wanted to carry the bottles. Mm-hmm. I right? said, so, well, if you pay them to carry it, they'll carry it. And, uh, so we went around and, uh, and, and, you know, we got, uh, well, actually when we, were, when we were finished, we had pretty much all of the retail in Atlantic Canada, uh, you know, all the mom and pop communes all the chains, all the gas stations, uh, with the exception of a couple of the large grocers that kind of had their own private label deal. Although we did get, did an acquiring uh, part of the business of one of those guys, but we were the alternative and we were the price point. So, and I understood retail enough <coughs> again that, you know, I went into, you know, the large, you know, one of the largest uh, hardware stores uh, in Atlanta, Canada, and said, you know, I've got a concept for you that I'd like to, like you guys to do. And they were resistant to it. They said, oh, it's big, it's bulky, it takes up space. And I said, don't worry about the money you're going to make on the water. It's the footsteps I'm going to create in your space that's going to be where you're going to make your money. So anyway, I was fortunate enough to get a couple of the guys to buy in that that system, it's a franchise system. And they said, you know, we kind of like that idea. And then when they started to see the numbers roll through, it just spread right through throughout Atlantic Canada. So we ended up with the whole chain. And, that when I, and it, was, it was kind of a little bit of an ironic item. Because of the weight of that product, the the local uh, owner was allowed to make a decision on water. So we were able to capture them. And they have own, uh, owners meetings, regional owners meetings of, of this franchise. And, and, uh, and, we would, uh, and they would kind of bring a look at the success we're having. So it just kind of took off on its own. And uh, so we duplicated that system ac- ac- across the board too, where nobody else really cared about it. But what it did for me is I didn't have to spend all the capital on having trucks running around in neighborhoods delivering two or three bottles at a time, the em- enormous amount of capital to have those trucks and all the billing issues, trying right. to collect money, trying to collect bottles, all the problems that I saw in that end of the business, I decided I do not want to be in that space. And at that time, Walmart started selling water coolers at you know, $100, $150 a piece, they were discounting them, where my competitor's model heavily leaned on cooler rental revenue. So I put banked nothing on cooler rental revenue. I said, I don't need to sell the coolers, Walmart's taking care of that, or right. I'm gonna sell the water. So we stayed out of the neighborhoods, we did everything, centralized everything, so it reduced our capital costs, we didn't have to have the amount of equipment, we didn't have to have the people. So we were uh, you know really lean, our cost for bottle was the lowest you could be in the marketplace. And at the end of the day, that's why uh, they ended. I ended up getting bought out because they, they couldn't compete with my business model. And the only way to, to, to compete was to actually just buy me.
0: Well, the, the stuff that you're talking about, because, because this is what I see a lot when, when I look at a business and I examine what they're doing is I see that people are trying to grow a business and they'll take the sales they can get. And so if some homeowner were to call up, they would want to serve that customer just because they want to make sales. Where you're talking about actually putting some thought into how is this business going to function and how can we make the most money with the least amount of investment, right? Cause you're talking about eliminating the the delivery trucks in neighborhoods. You're talking about el- eliminating the HR required to run the billing and collection for all these little customers that are spending 20 bucks with you, right? Now you're sending one bill to the hardware store owner for a thousand dollars, right? And, and, in, and sending the truck to his place once a week and, it probably doesn't have to be one of those fancy bottled delivery trucks you can make do with uh you know any kind of van truck that you can get your hands on right
1: well I, it's just in some respects so that was kind of initially how we started but every dollar we earned any any money excess money we had was 100% focused on efficiency because mm-hmm. I was in a commodity business i said the right. only guys going to survive in a commodity business are the most efficient guys so we did we did end up uh you know, I was very fortunate in, in, in any business I've been in, you know, always seemed to have good local support. So there was a local, uh, a local uh, truck dealer here in St. John, uh, uh, Bayview International at the time, uh, Mike Nagel. Anyway, Mike had enough faith in me that he said, you know, I'll get you a truck. So we start. we had, so if you can envision like a beverage box truck would be very similar to like a Pepsi truck or a Coke truck or whatever. Okay. We migrated into that. So we invested in that and then we invested into the handling systems uh, so that nobody would have to handle this product. So it kind of all kind of came together over time. There was a plan, but, you know, we invested the capital as it we went. And the handling racks were expensive. But uh, we ended up, for retail, we had a tractor-trailer uh, beverage box. And that would go around to all of our retail. So we'd pull into, like, for example, a Kent store. And our driver wouldn't have to touch one bottle. The fork would come out and lift off eight racks, bring it in wow. the warehouse, stack it up, bring eight racks empties back and drive out. So we could deliver 150 or 200 bottles in about ten minutes where fifteen minutes where you know any of my local competitors well they couldn't compete and and uh, and then and and the the major competitors just never really thought that way they weren't thinking retail they were thinking you know home delivery
0: you were leveraging the fact that your customers had a forklift there, yeah, you know leveraging their assets to make your yes. business more efficient yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. yeah, okay so. So now what has happened is you've now ended up with a business called Rossi Capital Partners. And now your business is about money and it's about helping other other people. Can you give us a little bit of a description of what Rossi Capital Partners does?
1: Well, in, in simple terms, and it's probably a little broader than the description I'll give you, but we are a bridge lender for companies that are in distress or in creditor protection. And people say, well, why would you ever, because people have said this to me, why would you ever want to be involved in that? But I think it's probably my business history in terms of, you know, most of the business I'm involved with struggled or or were out of business or going out of business or, you know, some form were in pain. So I don't know, for some reason I'm attracted to that. I think it's because there's a, there's a, there's a uh, motivation to, to fix. You know, I think I enjoy the, the fixing part of it. You know, kind mm-hmm. of like I, I liked working on cars. I like to work on businesses. So. <laughs> You know, and, and I think if you look at that and say, well, you know, if I want to paint it with a bit more color, uh, you know, it doesn't mean any business. You know, there's businesses that uh, aren't worth saving. Uh, there's businesses that are on their way out or there's businesses that just have problems that are just way too expensive to correct. But there's lots of business, really good businesses that get in trouble and it can happen to anybody. And, I, you know, I, I've seen some stuff and, you know, I, I just, it just, it's mind boggling the wealth you know, that's been, that I've seen lost and, and, and uh, you know, people that you know, maybe don't know when to quit or, or, or maybe don't know when to pivot or, or make a change in the business. So they might have a great business model, but now they're financially exhausted because they didn't make the changes that they should have made or could have made. And a lot of it is, you know, people seem to not want to ask for advice. And, and uh, you know, and then what comes with that, and I think it's, you know, it's probably a human element. If you're in business in a community, you're probably a little embarrassed to talk to anybody about your problem. Mm-hmm. So who do you talk to? So you don't have a broad group of people you can talk to. You're having trouble, so you don't want to talk about it. And that and that, that doesn't help. That continues the spiral because you are continue to do the same thing you've been doing before and that obviously isn't working. So I see a lot of that. And, uh, you know, and I, and I think, you know, it, it, it's, you know, there's no answer to it. There's no cookie cutter answer for any problem within a business. But when you look at a business, there's, usually there's a problem or something underlying and a lot of times it's, it's not necessarily a really hard fix, but it's going to take money to fix it. And everybody has to be on the same page and push forward to, to make the correction. So, so that's, you know, we like getting involved with companies that, you know, have a, a pretty, pretty solid ground or a solid idea and the infrastructure is in place. You know, the capital has already been spent and uh, it's just got to be, you know, either run more efficiently or there's got to be a change in the way management looks at things, or maybe, you know, change in the customer profile or, you know, there's a, probably a hundred and Answers to what that change needs to be, but that's what we do. We'll take a look at the company and you know set aside the balance sheet and all the all the financial stuff and say, what is this business about? Uh, what do they do? What does the market look like? Who's in the market? Mm-hmm. And you know, is this a pivot or a change? How much is it going to cost to make the pivot, or what is it going to cost to change? You know, the history of this company
0: into turning it into a profitable business. So so you're <clears throat> you're looking to help businesses that have something good in their core, but it's it's mismanaged in some way and and I guess just as an example i've I have a good friend who does this with restaurants and he typically looks at restaurants that are failing and he usually finds uh cost of food or portioning problems and so there there's a lot of sales, but the sales aren't translating into profits because whoever's running things aren't doing aren't keeping their eye on things like your ice cream scoop, right? How many scoops are there in the tub? And so he looks for the restaurants that have a high enough sales level that are clearly just messing up the delivery. And so you're looking for businesses that have the right business model, but they're not executing it properly. Now, there are people out there who talk about businesses like this and they talk about how a distressed business, can be an opportunity for someone to get a good deal on a business. And I'd like to address that a little bit because while you have acquired some of these businesses, the investment isn't necessarily in the acquisition, is it? <laughs> the, the big part of the investment is in the pivoting and the changing.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah so it's, <laughs> it, it's, not, it's not just what you end up having to pay to acquire the enterprise it's then all the resources that have to be dumped in.
1: Well, that's right. And that's the
0: part I think a lot of people miss.
1: Yeah, now it is their value, and what's it gonna cost to get to the point where that value is actually producing profit? Yeah. And There's lots of good businesses out there that get in trouble, they've already spent the capital, they didn't pivot, and uh, this, so I guess, you know, we're looking at a second chance, maybe a new set of eyes or, you know, uh, you know, I, I have, uh, you know, we have uh, professionals that look at things, you know, from an analytics point of view, I look at the basic business and say, does this business make sense? And, uh, and, and, you know, so, so we're not zeroing in, like, you know, everybody's saying, everybody's saying no to me, we don't always say no, we'll take a look and say, well, yeah, there's a business here, but these are the things you need to get rid of or the things you need to change or sell off or. You know, whatever the example, maybe this business isn't scalable, but maybe this business has value to somebody else, where they could bolt it onto a current operation where they've already got the existing overheads. So that that's kind of the way we we look at a business: is you know, where's the value in it? Has it gone too far? Is there too much debt? Is it is it just really basically lived out its life cycle as was? And if it's going to be reborn, what's it going to be reborn into? So there's assets there, but. I think to to maybe zero in on Honey your comment, it's it's a you know for somebody that doesn't have and I'm not claiming to be an expert but somebody that does not have a whole lot of business experience or doesn't have a very deep group of people with lots of experience to help them, then uh, you know I, I don't know other way to describe it other than you're in for a world of pain.
0: Mm. So and and what has the track record been like at, at Ross A Capital Partners? I mean, have you been able to help a great number of businesses turn around or or have you had some that, that you've ended up having to take the reins? Uh,
1: I'll put it this way. You know, I, I don't think there's been any real uh, fails. Uh, some Some deals turned out better than what we thought. Some deals maybe just okay, thought we could do better but there's been no fails. But I mean, all, all the cards are on the table and typically where we're getting involved in a business, not, we're not interested in taking over a business. We're interested mm-hmm. in working with the owner. So that's probably one of the biggest pre-qualifiers is really understanding the owner. So is the owner in, you know, does, does he have venom or is he just wore out? Uh, does he still have that, you know, twinkle in his eye and, and you know just the love of the business and, and really want to continue with the hard work and the heavy lifting that, that's the kind of people we're looking for. So it's really going to be about management. You know, are the management interested in continuing, uh, considering the company's interests, or are they you know, two minutes away from leaving, going out the door, and then you've lost you know, that, that resource, which is very important to us. Mm-hmm. So it really comes down to you know, what's, what's the appetite for the owner and what's the management team look like and their willingness to change thinking. So, you know, you know, we'll, we'll sit down and I have, you know, my my own uh, profile sheet that I go through with an owner when I have an original meeting. And if that, if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. In other words, you could have a great business, but if you're very difficult to deal with and you don't really want to make any changes, who am I to come into your life? So I get
0: the impression that a lot of these people, the business owners and management, maybe they've run successfully for a long time and then things have changed and now they're having difficulty and it might be a little bit difficult for them to, to put themselves into a coachable position yeah. where they're willing to accept a little bit of leadership from outside.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's definitely uh, an ego thing that you're dealing with. Mm. And, you know, and for me, part of my profiling is to understand your personality type. Just, you know, and, and not for me, more for me to know how to talk to you and communicate with you more than anything and, and if, and if I can make that work, then I say, okay, yes, there's somebody that we can work with. We just need to work kind of with them on their terms of their personality type, or the terms of their personality type. But uh, with me, I think, you know, I, and, and that's a, probably an example that I'd like to kind of maybe give you would be, you know, in the last probably two years, uh, you know, I'm dealing with guys that, you know, didn't have a small amount of wealth. I'm talking considerable wealth. I'm talking $10 million plus net worths mm-hmm. that are in the tank. And and you look and say, gee, you know, this guy could have walked away and lived his life happily happily ever after, but what happens is, or what you know, what what appears to happen, and uh, and it's not a criticism. I think it's just you know, when you're successful, you think everything's easy, and so, and so it's like you know, if I'm a a baseball player, and I use this analogy, and I step up to the plate, and I'm a new guy on the team, I step up to the plate, and I knock it out of the park. I say, gee, that was easy. And uh, so that's my business. I go around my plate and I take my win. And then I just said, well, I'm going to go into another business now because I've sold my business. I have all this money. You know, I, I can hit home runs. And they step up to the plate and they strike out and they strike out and they strike out. And the money's being spent. Every strikeout is a spend. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, they, 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 they had all this confidence that, that they had, but it was just kind of, you know, and there's always a little bit of luck. So they might have a little bit of luck. They had great success. Mm. And then they step up and think that they can do anything. So it's almost a sense of a little bit of self self. Uh, maybe overconfidence uh, i don't know if it's a fair word to use, but it's you know they're, they're in a new business and it went into a business they don't know anything about, just happen to have all this capital and that's a dangerous thing when you'll be lo- a yeah. large amount of capital available you, is a very dangerous thing
0: there's there's a, a a concept in psychology called survivorship bias and and I think that's what you're talking about where if somebody ends up on top and they end up winning they they believe that they understand everything that they did to achieve that when there could be other things like luck, market timing, et cetera, that, that certainly were a part of their success that they don't fully grasp. Yeah. And so, well,
1: and the reason I like baseball is because if you're successful three or four times out of 10, hmm. you're a superstar. So, you know, it's not that easy and yes, you know, you, you could get lucky and hit a home run or like to say, you know, have your batting average, you know, but it's three times out of 10 and you're considered a superstar. You know, what does that tell you?
0: Yeah. Well, it, it's a great analogy, right? Because if you're batting 300, you're failing 70% of the time. <laughs> That's right. Um, so you don't know when to quit sometimes. <laughs> well, so so what advice, and maybe you've touched on this a little bit, what advice would you give to someone with a job, someone who's employed who wants to be a successful business owner? What are some of the things that that they should be considering before they make the leap either into buying a business or, or starting something?
1: Well, I'll give you a one, probably one piece of advice, which is really, there's two parts, I guess a part A and a part B. Part A would be do your research, which is obvious. And part B is before you do anything, put together an advisory board of people that have knowledge, and it doesn't mean they have to have knowledge of that specific business because you know business principles are pretty broad so you know get somebody that maybe understands a bit about finance get somebody maybe that maybe understands the industry you're looking at being in and put a little group together and you don't have to pay for that uh, in most cases particularly you know in a lot of the communities there's some retired guys that might have been in in that space and have you know spent their whole career there that could give you some valuable information so it's about uh, it's about getting that information and getting you know that from people that have had, it's all about experience so if you can tap into people's experience so if i had one thing to say i would say uh an advisory board uh and and like I say do your homework so you can you know inform the advisory board of what what you're trying to do and what your vision is so they can uh, critique it tear it apart stomp on it you know, beat it up so that when it's all said and done, you're going in with your eyes open on what risks, what the real risks are going to be. Because as you know, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur, it, it's not, it's not an easy go. There's peaks and valleys and, and people talk about it. But if you can get some people that have lived it,
0: mm-hmm. they're going to
1: take you down off the pedestal and give you the reality check you need because it's not punching a clock anymore. It's, it's, you know, it's you, it's all you, you're all in. And if it doesn't work out, there's, there's uh, going to be collateral damage. And, uh, if you can minimize, minimize that risk, that's all I can say, minimize that risk. And that's by putting a group of people around you that understand, maybe even know you well enough to know a little bit about, you know, kind of how you operate and the way you think to, to keep you checked and to give you that advice in particular, to like say, along the lines of experience and, and just people that have been around the block. And, and you know, why, why do you need to go through the pain of learning that when someone can just share that information with you? That'll cut to the chase and you'll be successful a lot quicker.
0: One of the things I'm gathering from our conversation is that when you talk about, you know, right from that initial ice cream stand, you were open to creating connections and asking for help. I mean, you asked the the dairy, "Hey, could I have some free ice cream? I'm a kid starting out." Most people would never think to do that. I can tell you, most people would never think to do that, to just ask, right? And 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 then as you move through life, it's this continuous building of this network of people that you can pick up the phone and talk to about different things, and ask information, and and to, and then I mean, I'm sure this is how many of these opportunities come to Ross A Capital Partners, is through all the people you've met over the years that know that you do this, right?
1: That's right, yeah, That's that's, we do very little marketing. And, uh, and it's mostly through the through the networking. And people say, "Well, you know, I know a guy. This is what he does." And a lot of times, if it's not uh, if it's not something directly within my wheelhouse, I have no problem connecting somebody with somebody that would be able to help them more than I could. And uh, to me, that's just you know that's just part of the lie of the land. It's it's helping entrepreneurs. And uh, yes, I'm running a business doing that, but that doesn't mean every every entrepreneur is a customer of mine. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, if I can help them, I'd be glad to help them. And, uh, and that's how I approach it. I think it's, you know, I get lots of calls and really not much to do with uh, my business, but looking for a little bit of advice or, you know, so where could I find this or who could I look to or whatever. So connecting people with maybe the person that's better than me to help.
0: And so I'm just looking at my list of questions here that I jotted down. Um, you know, you talked about find, just looking basically at the business and how the business model works, et cetera. And looking for where the value might be, even though the the business that's functioning isn't isn't working right, uh, I wanted to ask what's the most hidden opportunity that you have uncovered over the years what's the one that probably most other people wouldn't have been able to see that you were able to notice
1: uh I'd have to think a little bit about that I think uh I, I probably, you know, and again, you know, maybe we'll call it a little bit of luck, but uh, I had mentioned earlier that uh, I was in the pop business mm. and uh, so I was just, uh, I wasn't married yet. I had been in the dairy bear business and, uh, you know, I did my pilot training and decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I had an opportunity to go into the soft drink business. And most people uh, would remember pop shop. So pop shop went bankrupt in Moncton. And, uh, you know, the receiver had everything and it was all being sold off the manufacturing facility, the building and, and so on and so forth. So when we went in, looked at it and said, you, you know, I don't know anything about running a pop plant. I don't know anything about most of what's going on here, but I like pop and I think other people like it and I think I can sell this. So what we ended up doing was...
0: And, you know, and for, people, for people who don't know, if you wanted to go to pop shop, I think what you did is you, you had to buy a flat of bottles... And then you would go to the store and, you, and they would swap them out for you.
1: Yeah. Well, the hook was you could mix and match. So all right. the flavors were there and you could pick, you know, a couple of lime, Ricky, and you could pick black So You could pick, pick your favorite pops. And,
0: you know, that was... That's the right. Cop. All yeah. the bottles were the same. The caps were different.
1: Yeah. And you were only paying for the pop because it was a returnable case and bottles. So you would exchange the bottles for your empty bottles for full bottles. So you're only paying for the pops so it eliminated the packaging costs, so to speak.
0: Okay.
1: So, it, so it ended up being a discount of product because they were only paying for the, for the, for the content. But uh, so I think, you know, the opportunity that we struck there was, you know, everybody looked at it as worthless and to some degree it probably was worthless to most people. But we, uh, so what we ended up buying, was said, no, uh, Mr. Receiver, you can keep the bottling plant. You can keep all the assets. We don't want anything. We'll take the bottles which were of no value to anybody and we'll take the brand and we'll take the recipes. So we made a deal and and took those items. So we immediately went to a private bottler and got them to do all the bottling. So they had the quality assurance. So there's no overhead there. And then we uh, started back on the road again. So I was literally back then driving the pop truck. So I think the little bit of luck that we had, or, or, you know, I guess it wasn't really luck. We knew that a lot of the, the, the stores that were carrying this product had empty bottles on hand. So those bottles were worthless and they had already, they had invested, uh, I think back then it was like $5 a case. So, you know, a guy would have $500 worth of bottles that were taking up all this room in his in store or a storage area that were worthless. So I contact them, basically show up and say, well, I, I can't buy these bottles from you, but I'll trade them. So you, I'll sell you full, full bottles and you give me your empty bottles and we'll just go back, start up where we left off. And they're in a position that you know I, I, I couldn't afford to buy the bottles, so I wasn't going to buy the bottles. They were their bottles. They bought them. So, but I'll trade your bottles that you have on hand for the full bottles and you just pay me for the product and we'll just carry on with the relationship. So it worked out great. So the actual reinstatement of the business was very quick. So we were able to get right back up to where it was uh, pre-bankruptcy. And, uh, and then, you know, we, you know, went from there developing the business, you know, t- acquiring chain stores, did some promotional things and, and uh, developed the, the system and, uh, and actually moved into a distributor uh, model uh, so that we could ship a bulk product into rural, more rural areas. So we kind of developed the business and that's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, what helped me with the pop or the story, the water business, because I had a, you know, I kind of understood distribution, understood, you know, how so, you can move the product to the
0: market. So what is unique about this is that the store owners own the empty bottles. Okay. It, on, they would, it, you know, they probably didn't, but they would appear as an asset on their balance sheet, right? A hundred cases of bottles, right? Yeah. But in reality, their asset represented your goodwill. That's right. Because those bottles weren't good for anything except trading for you. They were good right? for
1: nothing. They were, the only ones they had value to was me and the store owner.
0: What, what I'm starting to see here is a bit of a pattern. This is like the forklifts. You, you were able to get into a business where you leveraged other people's assets. Yeah.
1: Well, it's all, all about not spending the capital.
0: Right. How can we do it without making a, a big investment?
1: Because if I'm not doing so well, I don't have any capital costs. I don't have a, a forklift payment or I don't have all this overhead that I've created because I thought I had it all figured out and found it that I'd made a mistake and I needed to go in a different direction, which is very common. You know, entrepreneurship is about pivoting. That's, mm. that's the bottom line.
0: Yeah, and you know it's funny because in my in my exit planning, I have an online course about exit planning called "How to Get Out of My Business." And one of the things that I that I highlight in there because sometimes it's not obvious to business owners is I say that business buyers are looking to get the maximum amount of return from the minimum amount of investment. Which, when you say it like that, it just sounds like a, this most obvious statement in the world. But people don't actually stop and think about that. You know, when they they acquire big capital equipment, they acquire all this stuff, they expand their inventories and they never stop to look at it from the point of view that, you know, the finance guys at Walmart do, you know, like, what is the return on our equity, right? Yeah. They, they're, they're just trying to chase again, usually, I need more stuff because I need to get more sales. They're all focused on chasing the sale instead of actually heightening the return on what they've got in the business.
1: Yeah. And and I'll drill into that a little bit. So like when we talk about the bottled water business, my full intention when I went into that business was to sell that business before it was even a business. I was going in the business to build and sell it. So I thought it was a five year run. So I I made a mistake. Uh, I was, I ended up on the wrong side of the bell curve. I get in at the top of the bell curve. It was going down the side, the other side of the hill. So Dan and, and, and the big players decided to exit the market because it was a commodity. Pricing was an issue. They couldn't make the money they thought and they couldn't get the growth that they thought you know, for a whole bunch of reasons and but basically because it was a commodity. So that meant I had to kind of rethink, you know, what am I doing? How am I doing things? And, you know, how long am I going to be in this business before I'm going to get to value? Because I wasn't looking to sell to a local. I needed. To, I wanted to sell to... A wealthy entity, somebody that had lots of cash flow and lots of money, and I'm not really that big a deal. If they want to buy me, they'll buy me. Mm. So, so that kind of put me in. A, it was a ten-year run, which was five years longer than what I had predicted. So, you know, everybody makes mistakes. But what I was doing the whole thing, I was always conscious of well, who's my likely buyer? And the likely buyer was always the same company, it was the largest guy. And so, when we bought bottled water racks, when we bought coolers, any asset we bought, we bought it. What they were using, so when they bought the business, we didn't have all these useless transportation racks. we had the same transportation racks they were using, yeah. and those transportation racks, if I remember correctly now, were around five hundred dollars, maybe even more than five or six hundred dollars a rack, and we had like hundreds of these racks, which, if I hadn't done that, that would be zero value. that They pushed that off the table and said, okay, we're not interested in that." But so mm-hmm. I was able to sell all of those assets with the business and they had value because they could merge it. It wasn't going to be complicated. We, you know, everything was the same. The bottles were now the same, the re- transportation were actually the same, even the trucks, because at first they said, well, you know, we always a problem with buying trucks. And I said, well, you know, I can't sell you the business if you don't take the trucks. And so we'll need to come see the trucks. And this is the very kind of in the earlier stages of discussion. Once they realized they were all the same trucks they were using, the trucks were not an issue and the trucks would have been a deal breaker at the point. Cause there was millions of dollars with the trucks. You know, I can't keep them for lawn ornaments. They have to go on the deal. So it, it eliminated that issue. So, you know, even if you're not thinking you ever want to sell, because some people think, no, no, I'm going to build this, I'm going to build this. There's nothing wrong with being conscious of what everybody else is doing. And obviously too, why reinvent the wheel? You know, they're a big player. They're, you know, they're using these racks for a specific reason. Probably I'll never know why all the reasons are, but will they work for me? And for me to get the value back out of those racks, I got my value because it's the same rack they were using. So I think that's a very important point. You know, when you're building your business, you need to be aware of if you are looking to sell. And again, I've always been looking to sell. So I was always kind of paying attention to that. So it's a really important factor because, you know, you're leaving, you know, lots of money on the table. You're making the deal too hard for them to do in some cases because they can't fit your business into their business.
0: Yeah, I've, I've run into this exact thing, actually working for parties involved in a, in a, in a garbage business. And the acquiring business was using the front load, you know, lift the dumpster up over the cab into the back kind of thing. And the business that was being acquired was using the rear load where they attach cables to the dumpster and tip it up. And the front load has so many advantages because it's safer. The, the drivers in the cab, when the unloading of the garbage happens, and with the rear load ones, the operator has to use things. And if a cable snaps, there can be an injury. And so, you know,
1: and efficiency issues, like you said.
0: There were lots of issues, but the reason the, and, and the, the company being purchased had made a decision to use those rear ones, even though they, everyone in the industry was moving to the front load because they were cheaper. And at the end of the day, it diminished the value of their business tremendously. Yeah. Because you know the, the, the acquiring company was like, you know, what am I going to do with these dumpsters? And they said, well, if you can't use them, sell them. He said, I'm not going to sell them that would create the plant and equipment for somebody to become a new competitor. Yeah. And so the, the, at the end of the day what ended up happening is the business was sold for less and the acquirer wanted those dumpsters, even though they weren't going to use them and they, they paid a guy with a torch to slice them all up yeah. and they, they loaded them into a rail car and they sent them to the smelter. Yeah. They, they didn't want those used dumpsters kicking around to let some guy get into the business.
1: Well, exactly. And I mean, if you're, you know, a regional player or a local player and you're looking to be acquired, you want to be acquired by somebody with wealth. You know, there's a reason they're doing things the way they're doing it. And I'm not saying you can't reinvent or do things differently, but particularly when you're talking capital assets, be very careful what you're putting your capital into. I mean, if it's not parallel to somebody, that's looking, it's going to be a barrier. Basically, like you're saying with the garbage, you know, there's no value, so they're not going to pay for it.
0: Yeah, Robert, it's been a, a very interesting conversation. I know that a lot of my viewers are really going to get a lot out of this. Um, if if And I know that you do business primarily in Atlantic Canada. Um, if anyone wants to reach out and find you, what's the easiest way to make contact with you, Robert?
1: Oh, I think an email would probably be uh, probably as easy as anything. Uh, I'll give you my email address if I can remember what it is. I don't email myself that often. So it's <laughs> Robert Robert Gale, G-A-L-E at Rothsaycapital.com.
0: And Rothsay has an E after the T-H. Yes, it's
1: R-O-T-H-E-S-A-Y. And uh, speaking of efficiency, it's probably not the most efficient email address <laughs> because Rothsay, there's always a question how you spell that.
0: That's all right. If, if people can't reach you, you know what they do? They'll just, they'll just email me. Yeah, or that's they'll that's Google. what people
1: do. Yeah, you can Google. Yeah, I have a website. too. <laughs> uh,
0: all right, Robert. Thank you so much. And, uh, and it was great talking with you.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Dave.
0: All right, bye-bye.